0: <clears> Thank <throat> Well, good day to you, Phil and Mark. Morning.
1: Yes, good morning. So how's the how's the sound quality from your side? Can you hear me well? Very good. Okay. Yeah, Yeah, it sounds great. Likewise I can hear you very well too. Good. Okay. Hi, Mimi. Might have thought we'd have more people here by now. It
0: is what it is. (laughs) you <laughs>
2: Hi, right, Choladasa, this is Steve Ross.
0: Hi, Steve.
2: Good it's to nice. hear your voice. Thank yep. you. Nice to see you. Yeah.
0: Yes.
1: <clears throat> oh, it's nice to see you, too. <laughs> uh, how have you been?
2: I've been well. Thank you very much. Okay. Enjoying the class.
1: Great. All right, let's see.
2: I did resubmit the question that I had submitted a little while ago and I wasn't here and one other as well.
1: Oh great. That's really good. Yes. So now we'll try to get through all of the questions and there were actually uh, uh Although we didn't, we didn't count on having new questions, I noticed there were a couple of new questions submitted. If we have time, we'll get, get to those too. But um, yeah, I'm hoping we'll get through everyone's questions today. All right, well, it's 11 o'clock. I'm not sure who else is going to come, uh, but they'll be welcome when and if they do arrive. Um see the so i'm going to start start with the questions here uh that we didn't get to last time because uh and uh, last time we we deferred the questions for people who weren't there weren't here there here anyway, in all these places that we are <laughs> But we're not going to do that today, so we're we're going to start with these questions and just just take them um, in the order I have them here. So the first question uh, we'll talk about is from uh, Adam Malinowski, and uh, it doesn't seem that Adam is here, at least not yet, but uh, Adam, hopefully you'll hear the answer to this uh, uh, on the recording. So what Adam asks is, uh, he says, there seem to be a number of people on the internet who've got second path, but have found progress after that to be much more tricky. What advice can you give people looking to get to third path? Um, This actually touches on something of, of great import here. And um, I'll just, let's let's suppose that you were on a physical journey and the instructions you had were that when you reach this particular landmark, that um, uh, that is the beginning of the second stage in the journey. And that to uh, reach the third path, you take a particular compass bearing and you follow it. And then let's say that there's a whole group of people that have tried this, and they all get together on the internet and say, I'm, I'm not having any luck. I got to the landmark and I went, and I went, and I went, and I went, and uh, I never never found the third landmark. What would, what would you think might be the problem? So they we're talking about hikers. There's a particular rock formation, and beyond that is a tra- trackless desert, like the Plano Estacado in West Texas and eastern New Mexico. Right? You got the picture? And... So somebody says, yeah, that looks like the rock formation that's described. So I must be at the beginning of second path. And uh, so what are the possible problems here in this very simple physical explanation? I mean, surely you've had this experience, if not hiking, navigating around the city, you're pretty sure that this is the place that you're supposed to turn left but the place that you expected to find, you keep going and you keep going and keep going and you can't see it. Of course, nowadays you turn on your GPS. I'm speaking from an, other, an, an earlier age, but yeah. Well, I'll, I'll tell you the answers <laughs> that. <laughs> the first thing is maybe you're not at the landmark you thought you were. <laughs> that would explain a lot no matter which direction you went, you could go forever. And if you're starting from the wrong landmark, you're not gonna get to the third landmark, right? Then there's another possible explanation. And that's that you got to the second landmark just fine without a compass or perhaps even with a faulty compass. But when you get to the second landmark, you're given a compass bearing. And that's, in order to get to the third landmark, like I say, it's a trackless desert in front of you. And the only way you can be sure of getting where you intend to go um, is to have a compass that gives you an accurate compass bearing. So this is the other possibility. that Yeah, you did get to the second landmark. But you either don't have a compass, because you didn't need it to get where you are, or else your compass is faulty, and uh, doesn't that sound an awful lot like uh, the discussion that uh, Adam is referring to here? And this is the experience that I've had. There are a whole lot of people out there now defining themselves as stream enters and second path. Um, but the question is, are they? Uh, there's pretty, I think, straightforward and, and fairly broadly, but not totally straightforward and not universally, accepted um, standards for what might constitute first path. And so I think there's a lot of people out there who, not all, but there's a lot of people out there who, or either have decided on their own, or have been told by a teacher that they've reached first path, that are actually at first path. But there's a whole lot of people out there who think they're at second path. Uh, a lot of them because they've decided on their own, or others because a teacher has told them. But I don't think they are, and I have good reasons for thinking that. Uh, I have students of mine who will come to me. Uh, after some retreat time, and they'll announce that they're at Second Path. And what I do is review with them the characteristics of Second Path. And I say, well, if you are, um, then we'll find out, we'll we'll know over the course of the next few months or a year. Because um, if you are at Second Path, then, then there are certain things going to unfold for you in a particular way. That's the compass bearing. By the way, Um, and if you have truly reached second path, you it it really helps to have somebody to describe what the work of second path is. But if you have really reached it, then the maturation of insight that gave you that breakthrough to second path itself will point uh, uh, will point the direction, but still you uh, you still have to have a compass now the comp- what corresponds to the compass the second path is you have to have very powerful metacognitive introspective awareness and this is described in a lot of different ways but when i describe it as metacognitive introspective awareness i'm describing it in terms that i've defined very carefully and that people should understand. It means that you can take a very objective perspective while examining the states and activities of your own mind in real time. And that is what allows you to do the work of second path. There is a major school of Buddhist meditation within which uh, it is acknowledged that uh, very few people get past second path in that particular school of practice, and you know the question has been raised why this is, and my answer is, I un- I know the method, I've I've worked with it a bit, and have to familiarize myself and to even have uh, a, a path attainment while practicing that method, and I can tell you it does not develop the kind of metacognitive introspective awareness that is necessary to go from second path to third path. So you're essentially somebody standing at a landmark on the Plano Estacado, and what, what you do know is the general direction. But when you start heading out into that, direct, in that desert, if you don't have a compass, you're going to get lost. You're not going to get anywhere. And if you're not actually at that landmark, this is the other thing. Some of those people that come to me, and I'm pretty sure they're not second path, but they're convinced. And perhaps I should be more blunt with them. I started being more blunt with them, but I know in the past I wasn't. And I really regret that because now uh, there's at least one of those who has, you know, he's... He's out there teaching and proclaiming, and he has—he didn't bother to come back really for any further instruction. He announced to me that he achieved second path, and and you know I said we'll find out, we'll follow up, but he hasn't really followed it up. Um, so that's my answer to this question. You've got all these people. Are they actually at second path? And if they are, does the method they use to get there did it give them the Ability Did it develop the faculties that they actually need in order to achieve their path? So that, that would be my answer. And uh, I feel like there are a lot of people and uh, the so-called pragmatic Dharma movement especially lends itself to this, to people uh, coming to the conclusion that they've achieved a path because they've experienced a certain state. And um, this is just a, a, a simple misunderstanding because it, what we are talking about when we say path is trait dependent, To in order to pursue that path, you have, you, you have to have been transformed in such a way that you have certain traits that uh, you manifest both in meditation and off the cushion. Having states, even states that correspond to uh, very, very hot, even those that correspond to higher paths of awakening, and having those states last for a period of time, doesn't change the fact that if they are states only and not the reflection of the development of a trait, then those things are going to pass away. And so I think that's, that's one of the things that's prob- problematic within the pragmatic dharma movement in general is that there's a very strong tendency to mistake or, or to even be completely ignorant of the significance of the state versus trait distinction. So, so Adam, I hope this uh, helps satisfy your curiosity about this very important question. Um, Now, Steve, yes, in the Scientific American article from February 2017, you wrote, what is the mind other than the brain as experienced from the inside? What is the brain other than the mind experienced from the outside? And you say, my friend thought you were saying that the mind is the brain and the brain is the mind. Well, I thought you were equating experiences rather than things. Could you clarify what you meant? Okay, Steve, so <laughs> let's, let's have a look at this. Now, first of all, uh, it's been quite a while since I wrote that and I think I only read it once uh, after it was published. But I know when I wrote it, when I made that statement, I also made a clear statement that I am not a materialist and that uh, I, I might perhaps have defined, defined myself as a non-dualist in, in that piece. Um, if they edited that out, that would be really too bad because that would mean that would make this statement very, very confusing. Um, let's. Uh, I am a non-dualist, and uh, you know, there's the. We naturally tend, this especially our left brains, the way they work, analytical thinking. We just say, there's mind and there's matter, and these are two different things. And then we puzzle over the relationship between them. This is the Cartesian dualism that René Descartes um, was not the originator of because it comes spontaneously to everyone, but he was the one that, that presented it as a philosophical proposition that was very thoroughly examined and is found to be totally untenable on Innumerable grounds. Dualism is not tenable. Um, People have tried two ways to uh, two ways out of this dilemma. There are the materialists who say mind is just something that matter does. And then there are the idealists who say there's nothing, no such thing as matter. Matter is just something that mind makes up to explain its experience. There is uh, a fourth answer. Uh, Both materialism and and idealism are misunderstandings from the point of view of this fourth. This fourth is the non-dualistic perspective, non-dual perspective. In other words, there is no such thing as matter. It's a mere appearance. There is no such thing as mind. It's a mere appearance that there is something there is something that is non-dual in that it doesn't have the nature of matter as matter that because that's just an appearance it doesn't have the nature of mind as mind, because that's just an appearance but of this stuff we are a part of this stuff this is suchness this is this is uh, maybe we'll get to this in one of the later questions. Uh, this, is, this is suchness. This is, this is Rigpa. Uh, this, is, this is Buddha nature. This is whatever you want to call it. Anyway, it's, it's the uh, non-dualism. And, and, and just as an aside, there's a lot of different uh, dualisms. There's the self-other dualism. There's the mind-matter dualism, so on and so on. So maybe we should call this non-pluralism. This is one stuff. And mind is how we experience this one stuff from the inside. And uh, uh, matter is how we experience the same stuff from the outside. So I look at you, and I have absolutely no way of knowing whether you're really conscious or not, Steve. Gee, you you might not be. (laughs) Do you have a mind, or are you... Uh, you know, are, are you some kind of uh, zombie, or are you just a fiction that my mind has created, uh, like in a dream? Uh, I don't know. I really have no way of knowing that. But you act, you act like somebody that has a mind. And so I learned at a very early age, and we all do this, and as a matter of fact, we know at exactly what age uh, children do this. It's a result of mirror neurons and so on and so forth. And it's where we begin to posit a mind in other beings. It's called theory of mind. So children develop the theory that other beings have have minds. And of course, they go through a period of confusion where they think the teddy bear has a mind and they think the car has a mind. Um, And eventually they refine it down and and then they make more of the distinction that we're familiar with of, of what has a mind and what doesn't have a mind. Based on behavior, but that's just an appearance. And and if we if, if I were to try to find your mind uh, based on all kinds of different evidence, uh, you know, like for example, if I either stimulated or injured different parts of your body, including your brain, I would find that every time I fiddled with your brain, it would it would affect how your mind manifested. Right. That's what that's what we're doing from the point of view of, of materialistic science. But you don't, have to be, you don't have to be a materialist to uh, recognize that there is a one-to-one correspondence between events in the mind and events in the, in the brain. Uh, I totally expect that ultimately there will be no mental phenomenon that does not have a neural correlate. But that does not mean that uh, it is this piece of matter that is creating mind, nor does it mean that there is this mind that is just making up a brain with certain properties in order to explain its experiences. And much more, and, and what I'm giving you here is I, I'm giving you an explanation that your, your analytical left brain can understand, and perhaps, even accept this plausible possibility. That there is, that things are really non-dual. There is no mind-matter duality. And that these are just two ways of experiencing that are uh, a manifestation of one of the limitations of uh, uh, the, the stuff of reality when it manifests in, in this particular form, these particular five aggregates with the nature of a human being. Right. Um, So, well, I don't. I don't need to belabor this this further, um, except to say that this is not. Although I'm I'm presenting this to you as in in a logical and rational way, it's not. When you experience non-dualism, all of these things become obvious. In uh, the, the logic, or the finding of the logical way to describe it afterwards is uh, uh, in, in language that that is very much a, a, a post facto. And uh, I mean, the, the real thing is to is the non dual experience, which in itself makes, makes it all clear. And then you can explain it afterwards. But now you've got the explanation to start with maybe it'll facilitate your having that non-dual experience what do you think did I answer your question Steve
2: um, I, I think so well, well enough to satisfy me whether it's going to satisfy the other person or not I don't know right um, um, can I can I ask you something based sure. on uh, last month's yes I think it was last month's q maybe it was February um, as part of a statement you made <clears throat> Uh, you referred to the five insights. Yes. Now, I don't know if you misspoke or you five five the answer, but I've tried to Google that because I know about three insights, <laughs> but I don't know about the other two. No. The other two? No.
1: Oh, well, um, what you're referring to are the three insights into what are known as the three characteristics. Um, uh, insights into impermanence, no self, and suffering. Right. The other two insights. Um, I mean, the, the the three characteristics are pretty self evident and uh, um, uh, easy to to. Um, well, I shouldn't I shouldn't say easy to grasp intellectual, intellectually, but easier to grasp intellectually. But as far as interconnectedness, or properly speaking, paticca-samuppada, and I don't mean paticca in the sense of the links of paticca-samuppada, I mean the fundamental doctrine of paticca-samuppada, which is doctrine of causality and interconnectedness, when this is, that is, when this is not, that is not, and so forth. It's spoken in two forms, and if you analyze these two together, um, and, and then you add some, uh, some spiritual, experiential qualities to this, what you realize is, is that this is saying that absolutely everything is causally interconnected, and uh, not only that, uh, this 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 particular aspect uh, of Patissacca Samapada has been very thoroughly developed by a, a Chinese Mahayana school called Huayan, and there's the uh, um, I can't remember the, I can't remember the name of the of the sutra, but uh, you Google Huayan and, and you'll find that. Um, but when Ananda spoke to the Buddha, he said, He said, dependent arising. He said, Paticca Samuppada, Paticca Master. Uh, this, is, this is such a beautiful teaching and so easy to grasp. And the Buddha said, Don't say that, Ananda. It's very difficult to grasp. He says, But when you understand Paticca Samuppada, you understand the Dharma. When you truly understand the Dharma, you understand Paticca this is, in a sense, what he was saying, is that the core of all of these insights lies in Patitsha Samrapada, and uh, so to the degree, so this is this as you progress, you you know, you cannot perceive impermanence without, at the same time, whether you realize it or not, consciously or um, linguistically, when you realize impermanence, you've also realized Petticha When you realize no self, you realize Petticha Samuppada. Now suffering is kind of a derived characteristic, but uh, the, the the truth of suffering, of course, uh, that's the, the first two noble truths are the truth of suffering and, and the cause of suffering. And when you have grasped these, then to the degree that you have grasped, grasped these is a reflection of the degree that you have grasped the teacher so this is fundamental to to the dharma and also because uh i i realized that it is uh inherent in the other uh and in, in, in the insights that are commonly spoken of and i realized its importance it's, it's critical importance in the maturation and deepening of those insights as time goes by, that, uh, that it should, properly speaking, be discussed as part of the insight that is required for awakening. Now, the same thing's true of emptiness. Um, emptiness has got a lot more fame, but it was the same thing. It was an isolated school of Mahayana Buddhism that took, this emptiness, which the Buddha did speak of in a very good book uh, called Compassion and Emptiness in Early Buddhism by Analio, I believe. And there's, there's another one that's even more penetrating uh, by a, an Asian author whose name I don't remember. But, yeah, emptiness was dealt with in early Buddhism, but it was kind of minimalized. I think maybe because the Buddha thought it would be too confusing. And he was right because... Uh, uh, nowadays, the world is full of misunderstanding of, of emptiness, but emptiness is a same it 's a fundamental all of these all of the five insights when you take the insights into the three characteristics and you combine them with these other two insights they 're all really aspects of the same thing what you 're doing is is you're you 're seeing beyond uh, the ordinarily ordinary mundane conventional. Relative reality, and you're seeing, you know, you're understanding the aspects of a much deeper reality. Uh, you're you're moving in the direction of of uh, understanding more in the way of ultimate truth. So they're all they're really all aspects of the same thing. And I think it's it's best. Uh, you know, I, I I think perhaps the Buddha's parsimony was. Uh, considering what's happened in, in the past, I think the Buddha's parsimony and uh, just dwelling on the three characteristics was appropriate to the time. And it seemed to work just fine. He had no trouble bringing a lot of people to awakening without explicitly dealing with it. But I think, I think in these modern times, uh, we need to recognize uh, in, in greater fullness what it is we're seeing into with this special seeing called insight. All right. Let's see
0: where we go next. Uh,
1: Georgie, I don't, hey, you're here, good. Did I pronounce your name right, Georgie?
3: Yeah, and it really surprises me since I thought Americans cannot pronounce it, but I was wrong. (laughs) Uh,
1: Well. Uh, it's it's wonderful to have you here so I was wondering what your thoughts on meditating yourself to sleep Uh, I like lucid dreaming and I would like to experiment with meditation as an induction technique but I'm afraid it would be counterproductive to my daily practice if it is okay to meditate oneself to sleep can you explain the process of doing it Thanks. yes first of all this is is a wonderful practice and it's one that I I I don't think I mentioned in TMI we couldn't mention everything in there I couldn't believe how much I had to take out. But um, anyway, this is, this, I, I, this is a wonderful technique to, to use, to basically practice mindfulness as you go to sleep and you watch the changes that take place in your mind. Uh, if you want a really uh, clear understanding of the nature of dullness, yeah, meditate as you're falling asleep. If you practice meditating as you're falling, as you're falling asleep, uh, you might notice one morning as you're waking up and then and you're, you're, you're in that, they, they call the sleep, this when you're going to sleep, a hypnagogic state. When you're waking up, that sort of reverie period is called hyp, hypnopompic. But you'll find yourself spontaneously uh, being mindful of that hypnopompic state before, before you reach the level of saying, okay, I'm awake now. Right? Mm-hmm. Not only that, if you are already doing lucid dreaming, you're going to find it's It's going to be, what you're going to find is you're going to have a high level of mindfulness uh, during your lucid dreaming. So absolutely, it's a good practice and do it. And uh, don't worry, as long as your intention, it's all context dependent, ultimately. You know that you're in bed with the intention of going to sleep and you know your intention is to watch your mind. So this is not going to carry over in your meditation because the context there is you know your intention is to become as fully conscious as you possibly can, of as much as you can, and it's not to go to sleep. And uh, so you don't have to worry about the one bleeding over into the other. As a matter of fact, uh, sometimes for people who have trouble recognizing subtle dullness, uh, then this is exactly what I recommend that they do, is that they they, uh, uh, are mindful of what is happening in their mind as they fall asleep. That's a great question.
3: Okay, so should I also put the focus on the breathing, like in,
1: in TMI? No, actually, I find it much works much better if uh, you put your primary focus, or attention, you put your attention, in, not on a primary focus, but basically on body and bodily sensation. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you're you're feeling, you know, the 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 touch of the sheets and blankets against the skin and the pillow and and the weight of your body and all of the warmth and coolness and all that sort of thing let your attention rest on that while the real uh, conscious power is going into watching what is happening in your mind and you'll see these disjointed thoughts arising you'll see all kinds of interesting things happening and you'll recognize that it's it's interesting you'll have like a wide awake part of you that is recognizing that the rest of you is going to sleep.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that's my goal. Um, yeah. Since I'm having epilepsy, would that influence negatively on my um, my epilepsy? <laughs> on your which? On my epilepsy, I have diagnosed epilepsy.
1: Oh, uh, you know, I, I don't see any reason at all why it would. Um, but it's not in my area of ex- expertise. You're as close as
3: gets. <laughs> yeah, and,
1: uh, I doubt if you're going to find. going to well, maybe not. But it's going to be hard to find somebody who's an expert in epilepsy who also knows about meditation. So, okay. um, I, I'm pretty sure you don't need to worry, though.
3: <laughs> okay. Okay. May I ask additional question. Yeah. Okay. First, first, thank you for answering this. It's really helpful. Um, I've been studying with Tucker for. Uh, a year or so. Mm-hmm. And um, he told me that I'm I repress thoughts a lot. So basically, when I uh, sit down to meditate, when I first started, uh, I didn't hear any thoughts. And mm-hmm. while working with Tucker, I'm getting a lot better now. But um, now my practice is mostly like putting everything in awareness. So there is very little attention. And um, I try to focus it on the breath. Uh, those are tucker 's instructions for me now. I was wondering if you have anything else to add since you are uh, the maker of this
1: i I think that uh, you know if, if if you had difficulty at first uh, being aware of your thoughts and mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, putting more energy into awareness was fine, but if you 're not having that problem anymore don 't do this anymore put try to what you want to do is to Find the balance between attention and awareness. Play with, you know, more attention. See what happens to awareness. Uh, yeah. Increase your awareness. See what happens to your attention. And then what your goal is, is to increase attention and uh, without losing, you know, you got attention, awareness, and balance. You want to mm-hmm. increase attention, but not but not lose awareness. As yeah, yeah, yeah. Increase awareness, but not lose clarity of attention. Till what happens. And this is... This is what's happening in stage five, They're both are increasing together. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what Tucker said last time. <laughs> yeah, so, so
1: keep, keep yeah. in balance, okay.
3: Okay, thank you so much.
1: You're welcome. All right.
0: Upasaka uh, Kachayana.
1: He's not here this morning. Oh, how sad. Okay. Shreyas, as he's also known. And uh, uh, I miss miss you, Shreyas. So when you hear this recording, you'll hear that. So I have been aware of increasing mental clarity and unification of mind manifesting in powerful ways. The most powerful benefit has been from setting the conscious intention before any meditation or activity, and noticing how frequently this conscious intention becomes reality, yes. Could you discuss this aspect of unification of mind, as it always takes me back to one of the most powerful guiding verses I use in my practice, from Shantideva's Way of the Bodhisattva, The Intention, the Ocean of Great Good. Could you comment on this or add any guidance? Well, I... I wish you were here to uh, ask questions of, sure. but um, since, since you're not, I just have to, to run with what, you, what you've written here. Now, this is quite wonderful. See, the important unification of, well, let me say, in order here. First of all, the formation of intention is really the most powerful thing that the mind does. Um, in a sense, you could say it's really the only thing that the mind does is the formation of intention, and then whatever flows out of that uh, flows out of it through through different mechanisms. But um, so the formation of intention in itself and working with that is a, is uh, you're getting you 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 are actually working with uh, uh, what is the uh, root function of the mind in terms of what we subjectively experience as agency. Uh, Just as we might say that uh, the the clear light is the root root from which the uh, ordinary subjective experience of uh, being an observer uh, arises from. So yes, you're unifying the mind around intentions. The way the mind is unified in the earlier stages of the practice, you, you learn to unify the mind around uh, the intention to uh, practice according to the instructions. And as your mind becomes uh, unified around this, you experience all the benefits of the, the mind being unified around these particular intentions. Now, once you begin to uh, have insight, then your mind begins to unify around those insights. And the more of your mind becomes unified around those insights, the more profound the experience that it gives rise to. Uh, this, is, this is why uh, you can go from having an insight experience, which can in itself be really profound and wondrous, and uh, but then it tends tends to fade, and, uh, um, and and so you can remember it very clearly, but you're no longer experiencing it that way. Um, when your mind begins to, when that particular insight begins to spread within the mind system, um, and also when it when it begins to mature in the sense of Becoming part of uh, the worldview generated by uh, the various uh, subparts of the mind system, But then then at this point we can say the mind is becoming unified around uh, those insights, and this is extremely powerful. Now you mentioned uh, Shanti Davis' way of the Bodhisattva, and that's really interesting because we were talking about. Uh, earlier, really to the bodhicitta. Bodhicitta really doesn't arise until one has at least had the minimal realization of no-self, of the emptiness of self. And, uh, but this bodhicitta matures together with your understanding that, that uh, the emptiness of self means that the separation that is implicit in any notion of self is, uh, is an illusion. Uh, the insight into impermanence, which uh, is not that things arise and pass away, but rather that there is only change, nothing but change. There's only process. Of course, we can think of processes within processes, like the different mechanisms within a watch, but that's not really what we're talking about in terms of insight into impermanence, where there is only change. We're going beyond that. You know, The subdivision of, uh, that generates thinness uh, is, is an illusion, and both emptiness and impermanence uh, expose that illusion. And when that illusion is is uh, uh, presented to to the notion of, uh, 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 I, I lost track of what I was saying. Um. Yes. When 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 you realize impermanence and emptiness and apply those to the illusion of self, then the result is. Bodhicitta, which only becomes more powerful as those insights mature. So, this, so, Shriya, what, you, what you're talking about, this unification of the mind around insights and the profound effects it has, uh, and how that resonates with you with Shanti Deva's way of the Bodhisattva, is that, that this is that Paticca uh, Samuppada is the Dhamma, and the Dhamma is Paticca Samuppada. So bodhicitta is a manifestation of understanding at a deep level, of having insight at a deep level into patichasamapada. And so if you understand this, um, then uh, then of, of course, which I, I think you do, Shanti Shantideva's way of the bodhisattva uh, totally changes its tone and flavor. Now it becomes a clear explication of what you do as uh, uh, as a uh, personal phenomenon in a world of interconnectedness. So it, it gives that whole uh, that whole teaching uh, a, a profundity that uh, is just uh, uh, nothing less than than glorious. So I hope this is helpful to you, Shreyas. and. Um I look forward to hearing from you sometime soon. Next question is from Gianluca Barbetta,
0: And let me see. It looks like he's not with us today.
1: Unfortunate. Okay. All right. But we're gonna talk to his question anyway.
0: <clears throat> um
1: This question, can you explain and expand with some examples about how insight into impermanence, emptiness, and Paticca Samuppada shatters the three points of the universally accepted worldview, especially the third point? And which are the pitfalls that we have to avoid when we ponder these things? It seems to me that an incorrect understanding can be dangerous, and also worried to think badly in terms of relative truth and ultimate truth. Thank you very much, okay. All right. Um, In the latter part of this question, there are some things that I'm not quite sure what uh, is being asked, but um, in a sense, the first, uh, his first question, can you explain and expand with some examples about how insight into impermanence, emptiness, and Paticca Samuppada shatters the three points of the universally accepted worldview, especially the third point, and which are the pitfalls we have to avoid. That's the question that I can, I feel, that I understand well enough to to deal with here. Uh, Although there's a part of it that if you were here, I'd like to validate. Um, When you say the three points of the universally accepted worldview, I'm going to assume that you, the three points you are referring to are, I am a separate self, that I am a separate self within a world of other, and that my happiness and my suffering are a result of the interaction of this self with this world of other. So, um, so how uh, insight into impermanence, emptiness, and Ptichu Samuppada shattered the three points. Um, well, Ptichu uh, and, and uh, impermanence, uh, when impermanence is understood as there is nothing but change, and Paticca Samuppada is understood in the sense that everything is interconnecting and interpenetrating, inner then this obliterates the notion of I am a separate self in uh, a world of, of others, of other. Uh, And I think that, uh, yes, I I can appreciate why the question arises in your mind about uh, the third point. How is it that these insights um, shatter the view that my happiness and my suffering are the result of my interaction between self and other? Um, Now, on the one hand, you say, well, obviously, if I'm not a separate self and, uh, you know, I. And, and this is something that my mind imposes upon this, then, uh, then all these stories that I'm making up about uh, this makes me happy and this, makes, this causes me suffering uh, are nothing uh, but, but stories. But um, all of these things take us deeper into this, the emptiness. Uh, the impermanence and, and the interconnectedness. But along the way, what are we discovering? We're discovering the mechanisms. Like in the, in the uh, 10 points described in The Mind Illuminated, the insight that I always hope people have by stage four when dealing with pain the one that I always hope they have by then, that sometimes it doesn't come later, is what the Buddha is talking about with what we refer to as the first and second noble truth. The first noble truth essentially says that um, the world is full of pain and suffering. What uh, isn't clearly understood by many readers is that the Buddha distinguished two kinds of dukkha. There's uh, dukkha of physical origin. I use the term pain to describe that. There's dukkha of mental origin, and I use the term suffering to describe that, the Buddha makes the point that when we experience the one, pain, then this usually invokes the second, the mental suffering, which arises from resistance, from a non-acceptance of what it is. So you can really see how, uh, where uh, most of our suffering comes from. Remember, by suffering I mean the mind-generated dukkha, that uh, most of the suffering we experience is uh generated by our own mind, the pain the physical discomfort is the only thing that is coming from the interaction between this body, these five aggregates and um, and that which the mind sees as as other um, to the degree that people really understand that they you know uh, and this often comes in stage four as a result of of some of the purifications they realize that they have been generated that their mind has been generating uh, all kinds of now of suffering that has absolutely nothing to do with physical pain you know when uh, uh, there's so many kinds of suffering that we as humans experience that have nothing to do with physical pain, and if we as we come to understand what's going on there we uh, we realize that the mind is making up stories to the degree that you understand emptiness, then uh, it really becomes clear that all you ever see in your mind are stories. And it also becomes very clear that you can tell yourself stories that make you happy and you can tell yourself stories that make you unhappy. And so it's really, um, if you can ever understand your mind well enough and work with your mind successfully enough that you can completely overcome that kind of suffering that your mind generates. Of course, what you are left with is uh, the Vedna of uh, dukkha of physical origin. That's not going to go away, but believe me, it's going to become trivial. Um, The relationship between um, pain and suffering is, uh, uh, it is not additive; it is multiplicative. So, uh, suffering equals pain times resistance, and resistance is what we call craving. Right? What is craving? It's wanting things to be different than they are. Right? So, any form of craving is going to multiply um, any sort of physical phenomenon that is uh, associated with unpleasantness. You see how that works? It's a it's it's a huge amplification. So this is by the way this to to give credit where due this particular formula is uh uh due to Shins is from Shin's and Yang and uh, it's probably one of the best things he's ever come up with is suffering equals pain times resistance and this is what the buddha is talking about the first two noble truths resistance is creating. So so suffering both in reaction to physical pain and both all of that all of that human suffering that is generated by our own minds is the result of the mind's resistance to what is and uh so emptiness and impermanence and petite samupada are all pointing us to understanding that relationship and realizing that we essentially make ourselves happy and unhappy on the basis of the stories that we tell. Now, if you make all of your, if you were to couch, all of your inner stories in terms of the Dharma, in terms of right understanding, then what's going to happen then is a profound transformation. Right? And so all three views, that I am a separate self in a world of other, and that my happiness and suffering come from my interactions with the other, these all disintegrate and fall apart in the face of these. So, uh, Luca, I don't know where you are, but uh, I hope hope this satisfies you and answers your question. Um, uh, Pitfalls you can avoid. yeah it's mistaking uh, intellectual interpretations for true insight mistaking uh impermanence for things arising and passing away it's mistaking emptiness for the idea that nothing exists outside of your mind and everything in your mind is a is a fabrication uh the misunderstanding uh the, the idea that pratitya Samuppada refers to nothing but uh, the links of dependent origination you know these are the things uh, the, these are, are, are the pitfalls which, uh, where the intellectual mind stands in the way of deep seeing into the nature of, uh, of reality. Uh, you say, it seems to me that an incorrect understanding can be dangerous, and that's the sense in which it can be dangerous. I'm not I I don't think I'm gonna get into your concerns about relative and ultimate truth without you here to ask some questions. Okay, is Adrian here. Well, you folks that are here are getting the pleasure of hearing a lot of other people's <laughs> uh, questions being answered. I, I hope you're enjoying it and finding value in it. Adrian says, it is becoming very experientially clear to me the importance of morals in the process of enlightenment. I would like to know if you know of people who have achieved one of the four levels of awakening without practicing the Eightfold Path or something similar to it. Maybe you could comment on the importance of the Eightfold Noble Path, which is something that I found in TMI, that I haven't found in TMI. Um, Yes, this is a meditation book in a culture that has isolated meditation from its context. And thereby given birth to the phenomenon, which has uh, been unfortunately labeled the dark night of the soul, um, through a failure of understanding uh, of what's going on. Um, it uh, you know it's it's really hard to answer this question without you know it, uh, I, I'd have to do something equivalent to uh, a. a a sociological study of uh, beings who uh, are or who appear to be or who claim to be awakened and uh, kind of interviewing them specifically to see, you know, uh, to me, I can see a person realizing stream entry without having intentionally practiced uh, the Eightfold path uh, to, to, to any degree. And, and, but they, I think that you're gonna find with those people that they have accomplished something very similar, perhaps not identifying it. One of the things I wanna point out to you is that half of the Eightfold Path is addressing the same thing. Right thought and intention, right speech, right action, and right livelihood. These are all addressing the application of mindfulness to your own intentions. Uh, Here we come, we're back to intention again. And indeed, the Buddha said, when I say karma, I mean intention. So half of the practices described in the Eightfold Path are practices that involve examining the intentions behind your, uh, your uh, intentions behind your thoughts, uh, and we could include emotions in that, thoughts and emotions, the intentions behind your speech, the intentions behind your actions, and in terms of right livelihood, um, likewise the in- intentions behind all of the choices that you make that, uh, that define your, your lifestyle. So. Um, I can see people, yeah I can see people achieving the first path i I think that uh, i think it becomes less and less likely for people to achieve uh second path without uh, at least in some form or another practicing the eightfold path uh in terms of um uh, what you're referring to, morals, and I would refer to as as virtue, uh, distinguishing between morals, ethics, and virtue as as referring to three different things. But I know what you mean by morals, and it's really the same thing I mean by virtue. Um, means essentially um, not engaging in uh, uh, thoughts, emotions, speech, actions that uh, are uh, harmful either to others, uh, or, or, or to yourself in the sense of moving you away from, uh, away from insight and awakening rather than towards insight and awakening. So hope that answered your question. Now I'm looking at Mark Edinger. um, Mark's here. Great. Hi Mark all right let's have a look at your question in an earlier patreon q a you mentioned that you have practiced Advaita techniques which i take to mean self-inquiry that's uh, part of it if this is correct could you say a bit about your experience with this practice how it is related to the tibetan buddhist practice of awareness of awareness sometimes called sanatha without an object and how it may or may not fit into the tmi structure Um, yes, self-inquiry, uh, when I practiced Advaita techniques, I didn't ever reach the point where I could practice self-inquiry in the truly effective form that you find, uh, this being described by Nisargadatta and, uh, his, uh, uh student whose name I can't remember as usual. Uh consciousness speaks. Um anyway. His book is consciousness. But that to practice this degree of self-inquiry, you have to have uh you have to have a, a, a very stable and uh, a, a very stable mind and very powerful introspective awareness. And so I can illustrate that by saying how it fits into the TMI structure. Essentially, um, finding the still point, experiencing the witness, those practices are essentially the same as the Advaita self-inquiry practices. Um, there is, uh, and, and you also ask about if, how this is related to Tibetan Buddhist practice of awareness of awareness. Uh, without an object um, I haven't actually thought about this before so I, I just it's uh, it's obvious to me that that they are related but how how to describe that how to put that in, in words um, Essentially, what you're doing in both self inquiry and experiencing the witness is um, the mind observing the mind, and that, of course, totally fits the description of awareness of awareness. Um, now There's there's some differences in this, in that um, in in the in the self inquiry, you do have an object. You're pursuing the object. You are pursuing is uh, uh, who or what is having this experience. Um, So anyway, I, I, that's, a, that's about as much as I can say about that right now. <laughs> you, does it, to what degree does that a, a address what you're asking, Mark? Uh,
4: that helps, especially. So um, you mentioned the uh, witness practice. I think that's later on in the book. I mean, my, right. first pass, my first pass through the book, uh, I read the whole thing. And yeah. I, I vaguely remember that was a long time ago. At this point, I'm only practicing up to about stage four or five, Mm -hmm. so uh, I had forgotten that that's at the end. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, and the fact that it it is a later practice because it requires that someone develop those skills, which is for me the greatest weakness of the Advaita Vedanta teachings, is that they. They don't go through the very important stage of training the mind of the wana, of uh, of developing the mental faculties that and that are necessary to do this properly. So they leave the student uh, struggling unsuccessfully for a very very long time until they happen to develop these, or you know one of the favorite things to do by. Some of the more modern teachers is to uh, um, is is to basically talk the person into being able to to uh, practice self inquiry in, in, in an effective way um, i I've just listened to a few uh, uh, youtube and uh, uh, yeah, a few YouTube presentations by teachers who are using that mode um, But that's the principal weakness that I see is it is uh, a uh, Doesn't really tell you how to get to the place where you're able to do the practice
4: Yeah, well you you sort of just described my path. That's how I find myself back um, to um, uh, uh, concentration on the breath because after a long time of trying to uh pursue self-inquiry which in many ways is a very natural question for mm-hmm. me i found that most of my sits were filled uh not with real investigation but with mind wandering
0: mm-hmm.
4: and so i figured well i got to do something about that before i can pursue these sophisticated
2: investigations thank you That's
0: right. yes
1: you're welcome you're welcome, okay. I have a question from Crystal Mayner, And Crystal, you're not here, but uh, I can picture you in my mind quite clearly. <laughs> you mentioned to me once that it's important to stay in the clear light. If consciousness is only information exchange, then what is the clear light? Oh my goodness, okay, okay, oh, Crystal, yes. You know, it's this word only what What are you doing to the concept of information exchange? Uh, information exchange is the very stuff of, of the universe. Uh, it's an interesting thing that uh, uh, in in, uh, in the phys- physical sciences and in physics in, in particular uh, we 're beginning to realize that that 's the only thing there is is information right we 've gone from thinking that there was um, uh, solids and liquids and gases and energy in various forms to recognizing that there were uh, atoms and molecules and uh, energy in uh, uh, in a more limited number of forms to recognizing that there were that these in turn were made out of of uh, various Things which could be described as particles with particular properties including energy as photons and then we got down to the point where we started recognizing that in fact there were no particles uh, there were only forces and fields and now we're getting a place of recognizing that all there is really is, is energy and forces and fields just like particles and atoms and molecules and solid objects and things like that that these are the way that we experience and that we formulate in our mind uh, a worldview uh, based solely on, info- on on information. All there really is, is information. And not only that, this information exchange, I mean, this is the stuff of everything. But, you know, when a proton and electron form a hydrogen atom, they're exchanging electric information uh, continuously. And when two of those hydrogen atoms come together and they make a hydrogen molecule, you know, now, now the whole little family is exchanging information continuously. Um, the other thing that we could say: information exchange. Well, what what is the relationship between information exchange and consciousness? Consciousness is that particular aspect of information exchange that beings of our level of complexity experience. Um, so, it's. It's not that we're reducing consciousness as this super wonderful special thing better than anything else and uh, to uh, something as mundane and and meaningless as information exchange. It's really the other way around. We're discovering that consciousness is only a special case of this most incredible thing that that, that pervades uh, reality at whatever level you want to look at at it, relative or ultimate. That, well, uh, at least uh, it's always relative in the the sense that information is a concept that our brains are capable of dealing with. You know, and uh, ultimate reality goes a step further beyond that. But no, we're saying consciousness is a special case of something that is far far more wonderful and all pervasive than uh that is that is actually one of can be described as information exchange and actually love what what we as humans call love what we observe what we experience our love is also falls in that same thing it is a subset uh, information exchange. That electron and proton that I talked about that were forming a hydrogen atom—they're just making love. And when two of them get together, you know, uh, uh, to make a hydrogen molecule, well, they're having a foursome, but they're still making love. <laughs> what what drives the universe is is is, is love. So uh, let's let's not reduce information exchange to something. What we're saying is, is consciousness is uh, a particular instance uh, of extreme importance to us because of who and what, what we are as human beings, of something that is a principle that uh, pervades and describes uh, all, of, all of reality. So to go back to your question, Crystal, is, that is the clear light. Information exchange is the clear light, and so if you dwell in the clear light as it manifests uh, in 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 the form that we refer to as as crystal manor, that then you you are you are dwelling in this in the suchness. uh, That is what the the uh, uh, the name that the Buddha. Uh, was often known by uh, tathagata, gone to suchness right? so to to dwell in the clear light is to realize that this all pervading phenomenon that manifests amongst human beings as as uh, love, loving kindness, compassion, and consciousness, uh, subjectivity. Um, Gives rise to a lot of problematic things like the notion of self and other and everything like that. But anyway, it's it's uh, it, it's it's all clear light. Even your confusion, even your ignorance, is a manifestation of clear light. It's everything, right? Uh, what is confusion but a form of information exchange? But uh, we compare it to other forms of information exchange that uh, we discover are more consistent with whatever the ultimate truth is that lies beyond us. And so to dwell in the clear light is to dwell in that place of your consciousness that is a manifestation of the clear light. And this makes sense of something that otherwise wouldn't. There are, there are so many people over his, throughout history and throughout the world who want to equate consciousness with um, some kind of ultimate, and particularly some kind of ultimate that's related to uh, to uh, our, our subjective experience. You know, the, um, our subjectivity, our sense, our sense of being a self. And, and this is, this is, this is a really unfortunate uh, thing that, 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 uh, this is happening, you know,
0: um, the Buddha himself,
1: Said consciousness only arises with its object. Now, think of that in terms of information exchange. You can't have information exchange without information to be exchanged, right? Not only that, the Buddha denied that the consciousness that we experience, which comes and goes, you know, avidana and meditators have the experience of consciousness coming and going momentarily. Um consciousness consciousness goes when under anesthesia uh, to some extent, consciousness goes when you fall asleep. Uh, consciousness comes and goes all the time. Um, the Buddha really tried to make that clear. he tried to prevent people from identifying either some sort of essence which could be carried on in a series of lifetimes. And he also wanted to discourage the notion that there was some sort of, uh, that, that consciousness uh, was itself uh, a kind of ultimate reality. Uh, one, of the, one of the suttas that, uh, where he makes this really clear, uh, I mean, there's many, many suttas where he makes this clear. His description of the five aggregates, all kinds of places, uh, that, uh throughout the suttas where he points out over and over again in one context or another that the consciousness that we're talking about is something that only arises and passes away with its object so don't go giving it a whole lot more weight than it deserves or importance um, there's a sutta where uh, sati the fisherman's son is going around proclaiming consciousness as as that which is uh, that which is reincarnated, and so some of the other senior monks say, come to the Buddha and say, "Boss, you got to do something about that. This, this guy's this guy doesn't understand. He won't listen to us, and he's going around telling all the." So the Buddha comes and and he's not gentle with Sati, but he sets him straight. <laughs> so um, so we can we can escape that 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 kind of trap, Crystal, by recognizing what consciousness is consciousness is a manifestation of the clear light it's the clear light that is a manifestation of that is important and once you once you are able to dwell in that clear light then then you want to stay in that clear clear light Uh, it's the clear light of understanding so don't mistake your transient coming and going impermanent uh and empty consciousness that's the other thing about consciousness right all of the objects of consciousness are mind created they're all empty right even though they may have been triggered to arise by something that is outside of the mind the individual mind itself you know like somebody uh somebody steps on your toe uh well the toe and the stepping on and everything else, that's all mental fabrication. But there is some event outside of your mind that really caused all that fabrication to take place,
0: right?
1: So don't, don't, mistake, don't mistake the particular manifestations. You know, right now here in Tucson, the science of consciousness conference is taking place. And one of the things I find interesting is listening to all these people uh, trying to figure out consciousness and talking about the hard problem of consciousness and things like that. Um, I, I don't think there's any hard problem with consciousness, and I've spoken to that before. Anyway, Crystal, I hope you find this helpful so uh, uh, my point is really to move the remove the apparent inconsistency that you're seeing, which is a result of your uh, tending to want to make uh, to make information into something of less value than consciousness when one is actually just the manifestation of the other. Uh, we're now getting into some questions that go back to February.
0: Really, uh,
1: uh, a really practice-oriented question. And I think this person, oh, jean Luca is here. I, I didn't realize you were here when I was answering your question. Anyways, maybe you weren't here then. There's a question by German Grigorenko. I'm having difficulty with dullness around stages three, four. As I go through the four-step transition to the meditation object, my mind has a normal amount of clarity and I can often evoke some joy. The further into the meditation, my mental energy drops. I can hardly perceive any breath sensation with clarity, even as I try to focus, and have poor introspective awareness. This feels like a struggle and it often frustrates me because I seem to be unable to easily shake it off with the antidotes. After applying an antidote, my mental energy goes up just for a few seconds, and then I gradually settle back to the same low level of alertness again. Then I become reluctant to apply more antidotes because I get physically tired of forcefully exhaling or clenching my muscles and perhaps disappointed that it didn't work too. If I stand up to meditate, the frustration carries over and I can become annoyed at how uncomfortable it is or think that I can't always stand up to deal with dullness and need to learn to deal with it while sitting. Yes, there, now you finally got it. Sometimes I even stop meditating altogether because of this, usually with only a few minutes left until the end of the session. I know that pretty much everything is wrong with the way my mind currently reacts to dullness, but I still find myself stuck with this problem. So any advice will be greatly appreciated. Well, I, I, I think I can help you with this, um, and I'm certainly going to, going to try, okay? So, so yes, you're, you're, you're dealing with dullness, uh, there is this natural propensity to dullness uh, some people experience it to a greater degree than others uh, some people seem to have no dullness at all until they get the, to some of the later stages uh, but the vast majority experience it early on uh, especially around stages three and four so so you're in the majority there and um, and some people uh, for there's some people for whom it's a, a bigger problem than others, and it seems that you fall into that. So, um, as as you already know, there you're having an, there's an attitudinal problem that is really, uh, really compounding the dullness problem, and that's what I, that's the first thing that I'd like you to to see if you can't let go of uh, and work your way through, accept um, dullness welcome dullness. Uh, Don't just let it come, let it be, let it go. When it comes, you have to work with it. And uh, it's an important opportunity. So you're absolutely right. What your goal is, is to overcome dullness so that you can sit down and meditate and, and dullness is no longer a problem or rarely a problem, only when you're extremely fatigued or ill. So that's what your goal is. And so this, this dullness that you're having the experience of, if you overcome it at this stage, you're probably going to sail right through stage. If you, because if you're going to have to work harder to overcome it at this stage, you're probably going to sail right through stage five and six because you're going to end up doing a lot of the stage five work, um, um, just, just to overcome the gross dullness, uh, that you're experiencing right now, so that's the positive side of it, and that's the side that I would like you to that that is how I would like you to view the arising of dullness. Everyone sooner or later has to overcome dullness. You're getting the opportunity earlier, and you're getting the opportunity in a way that is going to uh, going to help you to learn to empower your own mind uh it, it, more more so than the average uh than the average meditator okay so that's first of all now the other thing is you say uh, after applying an antidote, my mental energy goes up for a few seconds and then I gradually settle back to the same low level of alertness again so what you're saying is you're experiencing sinking, and if you read the instructions in uh, uh the mind illuminated you'll see that that is an indication that you haven't, you haven't successfully overcome the dullness. It's called sinking when that occurs, that you've only successfully overcome the dullness with, you've you've only used a strong enough antidote to the dullness when you can remain in uh, an alert state for several minutes before the the dullness becomes, uh, overtakes you again. And uh, that is the window that you need, that window of alertness where the dullness begins to develop is is that's, you need to get that window so that you can see dullness, the onset of dullness earlier and earlier. And, And what you've got to do is be on guard against any kind of frustration that's involved in that. So use stronger antidotes. It sounds to me, and I might be wrong about this, but it sounds to me from your description like this is something that happens highly consistently um, every time you sit. And if that's the case, I would say, as soon as the dullness shows up, stand up to meditate. And don't worry about the frustration. Don't worry about how uncomfortable it is. Except that when it becomes so uncomfortable, that you're finding it difficult to stay focused on the meditation object rather than the discomfort, that's the time to sit down. And I'm sure that you're gonna find when you sit down at that point, that you have that window before the dullness recurs, that window during which you can learn to recognize the signs of dullness developing. Now, the other thing you can do is something I mentioned earlier in this talk, and that is, watch how dullness develops as you fall asleep at night. This is, gonna, this is, is, is going to be, uh, it, it's going to help you so much in recognizing the onset of dullness. So what's going to happen is I'm suggesting that initially you stand up as soon as the dullness is coming on. And after you've worked with this for a while, then you try using the milder antidotes like the muscle clenching and the deep breathing. If you still experience sinking, then go back to standing again for a while. But if you don't, then that's great. You've made progress. You now are experiencing dullness, but you're catching it early enough that you can uh, you can overcome it with a milder antidote. And if you continue, the antidote required will become milder and milder until the point the what you experience you're going to have is that, is that you recognize that when dullness begins to arise, your mind just automatically corrects for it. And that is something that's going to become stronger. And as I say, uh, you're, you're gonna have, when you get into stage five, you're gonna be really skilled at this. And it uh, doesn't, doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to uh, see breath-related sensations in every part of your body the first time you sit, because that's just a practice for helping to overcome uh, the tendency of the mind by the increasing the the power of consciousness. But when it comes to the actual goal of stage five, which is being able not only to not have a decrease in the level of your mental energy and conscious power during a sit, but it actually increases during that sit, you're going to find that, hey, this is this is something I can do easily. The body scanning practice might still be very useful to you, and I recommend that you do it uh, for the sake of being able to use it in stage six as well. But uh, if, you, if, you, if, if, if I'm right about the consistency of this pattern, then you can take advantage of that consistency. Always stand, check to see from time to time if you still need to stand or if you can overcome it with milder antidotes. Take advantage of that window to learn to recognize dullness. Watch the development of dullness that naturally occurs when you fall asleep. And as a part of all of this is just when frustration arises, recognize it. Uh, Recognize it just as something unimportant. Let it be there just like the pain that comes from standing. It's just, it's only if you identify with it. It's only if you allow it to overcome you. It's only if you become frustrated rather than having frustration arises that you have a problem. Because if you just let frustration arise and you notice it and you let it be there, it's not going to have much power over you. And eventually it's going to disappear. And... um as far as the frustration, if you haven't developed this frustration already, if you practice the way I'm talking about and you haven't developed this frustration already when you stand up, then all you're gonna have to deal with is the physical discomfort of standing up. And of course, that's the point at which you sit down and you see if, uh, see if you have a, a window that's dullness-free before the next time you have to stand up comes. Okay, I you're on the right track, You you've recognized you you've recognized the problems, and I hope that uh, that I've been able to fill in the blanks and that this works for you. Uh, and wouldn't mind hearing from you later on, if, uh, uh, to, just to let me know how well it worked.
0: Okay. Hassan Al Azawi. Uh,
1: I don't see Azan. Let's have a look at this. What is your opinion on the view that every form of physical pain or sickness is a manifestation of a certain aspect of the person that needs to be purified, and that this is the body's call to bring a person's attention to it? Uh, No, not every. Many, yes, but not every. You know, It's the nature of the kind of beings we are. You're going to experience physical pain. You're going to experience sickness. You're gonna eventually die. So, um, you know, uh, if what you were, if what was being suggested by whoever was saying this were true, it would mean that the only reason we ever get sick and die is because we haven't sufficiently purified ourselves. And the only person that's truly purified is somebody who is immortal and doesn't even age. And what a silly idea, right? But so it's not every, but many, yes, many. And uh, this is something I'm dealing with myself, you know. I'm, uh, I've been practicing for a long time. Uh, but lo and behold I've been experiencing a lot of physical illness and it's it's taken forms and it's been consistent enough that, that I finally got the message that there's something more going on here than just uh, yeah, it has to do with the nature of the kind of beings we are. But, and I am I am finding things that in my psyche from my from my childhood. I um, actually have experienced them as submerged personalities, two of them, one predominant and the other one's kind of secondary. I've discovered two submerged personalities in myself that need to be integrated. So uh, yeah, it's certainly true that, and, and I don't know to what extent that this is true, how broadly true this is, that physical pain and illness can be a manifestation of something that needs to be purified, but I can testify that there certainly are those those cases. Um, but not every. And the same thing, um, uh, the Buddha says this in one of the suttas, he's asked uh, whether has asked this, this question in, in reference to the uh, pre-Buddhist view of, of karma, that if it's true that every bad thing that you experience, and the Buddha answers back and says, knows a lot of things that have physical causes and biological causes, and so on and so forth, that uh, have nothing to do with uh, with karma. So I hope this uh, I hope this is satisfactory for you, Hassan. Um, is any Sorry if I've mispronounced your name. Uh, I get a few right every now and then, <laughs> but I can't get them all. Um, are you are which modern teachers are you inspired by? Oh my goodness um, you know i i don't think I don't think that's a fair question to ask me on a public forum, so uh, <laughs> I, I'm gonna take a pass on that one. I, I, I apologize, but uh, uh, yeah, it's not, appro- it's not an appropriate question. Um, okay, uh, Magnus, once again. Is Magnus here?
0: Mm, nope, looks like not, okay. Let's see that Nathan Becker no, Nathan, no. Uh,
1: well, let me do this the easy way. Are there any of you uh, who have, uh, that are here that have questions on the list that I haven't dealt with yet? let I do that first before I go on to these others?
2: I added one to uh, what I wrote with the first
1: one. Oh, if I went back to the first one, I would find that? Okay. Um, okay. So we're going to come back then to, uh, Magnus question after I've looked at, uh, after I look at Steve's, uh, Steve, your question isn't on the list. I, I had somebody make up a list for me. Um, and I, Less okay, I can
2: I can uh, reask it. It's about metacognitive introspective
0: awareness.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, how can I make this stronger? I I uh, I just can't see distractions coming before they hit me. And I know I should be able to do this. I can't see them when walking. I can't see them when sitting. I'm just suddenly in it.
1: You're just suddenly in it. Okay. Um, is are these Distractions, just the any old garden variety distraction, or is there a specific uh, kind of theme to the distractions you experience?
2: No, I don't think I don't think so. I think it has to do with current problems or current things I'm dealing with just in ordinary life.
1: Okay. So it's but,
2: no ordinary time. Kind of... I should say that I, I do have frequent times <clears throat> when I have pretty exclusive attention
1: mm-hmm.
2: to, to my meditation often. Okay. But when I don't...
1: (laughs) You're saying it's it's either exclusive attention or or if you are... or else you are so completely vulnerable to um, distractions that they tend to cause forgetting, (laughs) if not gross distraction. Uh, Okay. So, well... uh, What I would do... With these distractions, is just follow the um, practice guidelines that are given for stage three, where you know if uh, basically apply the principle of practice uh, according to whatever is happening in your meditation. So, if you are having forgetting, or if you are having gross distractions, then apply then apply the methods that are described in stage three uh, and stage four now particularly in stage three you know when you uh, when a distraction comes along and it's got you then label that distraction prepare your mind for the next time that that it comes up and uh, just keep doing that and check in every now and then to see if there's some distraction that is I, uh, or I shouldn't say distraction let me let me reword that. If there is some thought in your awareness that is just about ready to leap forward and 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 take over, and if there is, identify it, label it, and refocus your attention on the breath so what What I think is happening to you, Steve, is that it's not that you're it's not that you're lacking, completely lacking in uh, uh, the degree of introspective awareness necessary to identify these distractions, but rather you haven't developed this ability quite to quite the extent that, that you need. And now as you're getting into uh, this territory where, I mean, you say you're in, you, know, you can do stage six practices, no problem. That means that you probably, uh, your, your mind is in a, in a pretty highly energized state. And so that means that the, uh, the parts of your mind that are trying to uh, uh, intrude upon uh, uh, your meditation by having by by calling attention to their content. Uh, they're they're sharing this increased energy as well. So what this is doing is it's telling you that, hey, I developed some skill in catching distractions early. I developed enough skill to get to this point, but now, that but now that I've uh, increase the power of my consciousness to this level, I'm going to have to improve upon that skill because there's a type of distraction, you know, uh that uh, this is the hardest kind of distraction to deal with. You know, and I I describe three kinds of distractions, you know, there there's a the kind that you know, they're just you know, teasing you, saying, hey, look at me, hey, look, and, you know, and you, you sense that they're there, and you, you're probably good at ignoring those. And then there's the ones that kind of gradually creep up, and they're getting closer and closer, and your attention starts to alternate a little bit. You're probably pretty good at catching them. The third kind is the kind that just, boom, like you say, they come in and take you over. You haven't gotten good enough at catching those yet. Go back to stage three, stage four practices when that happens. When it's not happening, don't worry about it. No problem. But when that's happening, go do the practices that are designed to help you deal with that. Yeah, right, you're welcome.
0: Okay. I'm
1: gonna to try to speed this up a little bit and I still might not get through all the questions. Um, Magnus says, uh, I'm wondering about doing longer and longer sits and how to schedule my sits. If I'm free for six hours in a row, is it good to try and increase the time of the sits when possible? Similar to muscle training, I sit for 90 minutes sometimes, which can make me very calm for some moment, but sometimes almost also make me feel crazy. Maybe I sat with bearable pain for 30 minutes, but I start to really want to get rid of that unpleasant pain. And at stage four, encountering gross distractions, although no strong dullness. The alternative would be to sit for one hour and do walking 45 minutes sit, sit again. In this way, do I feel like it goes more easy? If longer sits are good, would it be good to also sometimes do really long, rigid, three-part step-by-step walking meditations for as long as possible? Uh, I've seen the interview with you and Stephanie Nash discussing longer sits, which piqued my interest, and I'm grateful for your very clear teachings so forth. Um, and he invites other answers. This is probably also posted on, uh, on Reddit or something like that. Um, there is great value in longer sits. And, uh, but from what you say in the stage you're at, I would say what you, you, you already know the answer. You just want me to, to validate it for you. Sit for an hour and do walking for 45 minutes. You feel like that works? Well. It, you know, pay attention. It's telling you that's work. As you go along, you can do, uh, you, you can gradually increase your sitting time. And when you reach the point of uh, diminishing returns, then back off again. There, you, there will be times when you'll find that you can sit for long periods, and there will be times when you, you find that, that you can't. Uh, You're very uh, right about uh, 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 including the walking meditation as a part of your practice. And you say, if longer sits are good, would it be good also to sometimes do really long uh, three-part step-by-step walking meditations for as long as possible? Well, you know, the same principle uh, applies, Magnus. Um, You know, there, there is a point of diminishing returns. And, as long as your meditation is going really well at the time that you're sitting for um, there's no problem when you notice it starts to deteriorate, then what you want to go ahead is you want to push your you want to push your boundaries a little bit so go ahead and sit maybe for another five minutes or so but uh, there, there is a point of diminishing returns, and also it 's a point at which you're uh, Likely to start experiencing uh, um, dullness and distraction and other problems. You don't want that. Uh, you don't want to ha- that to happen if you're uh, at stage four. So, um, uh, yeah, re- recognize th- there's going to be days you can sit longer than others, but just sitting longer for the sake of sitting longer, no. Sit longer as long as it's productive. Push your boundary a little bit. You no. Know, give it an extra few minutes, and then go ahead and walk. And likewise with doing the walking meditation. As long as the, while you're finding the walking meditation is, is productive, uh, that it's, uh, it, it's, it's going well, and uh, you're, you're not having any problems arising with it, uh, then there's nothing wrong with doing longer walking meditations. But if you start to find that you're feeling distracted uh, things like that, then you know it's about time to to quit walking. Uh, and as far as, as doing a more, uh, uh, I think you describe it as rigid, uh, three-part step-by-step walking, what I would strongly suggest is you adjust your uh, style of walking meditation to the qualities of attention and awareness that you are experiencing on that particular occasion. So there might be some times when just trying to do that very detailed walking meditation is not going to work as well for you. Other times it is. But once again, this idea of I'm going to do the I'm going to do the 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 most detailed form of walking meditation and I'm going to do it for a really long time, uh, this is not the right approach. Be gentle with yourself. Do things you know. Do things to the point that that uh, that. They start that some problem starts to develop. Push your boundaries a little bit and then do something else. Okay, I hope that, I hope that helps you. Um, Nathan Becker says, sanitize my go-to practice. It's been of enormous benefit to me. That being said, I've been dealing with some depression over the past couple of months that has been characterized by obsessive and recurring thoughts. These rapid invasive thoughts, as well as blunting of joy or preventing unification of mind, let alone much stability at all. Even if I am on the path of samatha, would it be wise at a time such as this to diverge completely from standard TMI samatha practice and instead focus on positive, as Shenzhen would say, which is doing metta or qigong exclusively until the depression has lifted? As it is, my samatha sits are enjoyable, but they don't feel very productive. Um,
0: well, Nathan,
1: it's always wise to include some, um, meta practice, uh, in, in, in your meditation, even if you don't, even if you weren't having this problem with, uh, depression and obsessive and recurring thoughts. Uh, and so I would highly recommend that you do that. Um, to the degree that you find yourself in negative mental states, by all means, do focus on the positive or do metta or something like that. So, yeah, those those are, are valuable things. But uh, I, I can't help but wonder by the way you've described this. You know, I, I, you're not here for me to ask if this depression was triggered by some um, some major life event. Uh, or not. But if this is something that seems to have arisen within the meditation as, as a result of the meditation, and it's characterized by obsessive and recurring thoughts, I would suspect that uh, this might be a, a, a something something coming to the surface that, that uh, should be treated as a purification. So you might keep that in mind as well. Um, yeah, they, they certainly will uh, blunt joy and prevent unification of mind. So um, something that's arising that strong, if it is something strongly, if it is something that requires uh, purification, uh, then it's going to be a wonderful purification when it happens. And so I wouldn't hesitate to go ahead and, and treat it as such. Try it out. Uh, follow the instructions that are given. I won't recap recapitulate them here. Um, and I hope that help, that 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 helps you. Even if some life situation precipitated this depression, uh, nevertheless, um, there's a very good chance that there's some unresolved uh, uh, inner conflict or. Uh, past trauma that is uh, related to this uh, or or something like that. So even if it was triggered by some life event rather than just arising spontaneously in meditation, I would still uh, uh, investigate the possibility that it might simply be something that needs to be purified. And... Thomas Bernardes asks: The precise distinction between attention, awareness, and meditation is one of your unique contributions. You mentioned that two correlate to different neurological pathways. Where would you recommend someone to start reading on this? Uh, any particular papers? Favorite textbook? This is, I don't know. This might be included in some quite recent te- textbooks, but you know, I haven't been teaching in this field for uh, twenty some odd years. Uh, but you can find on the internet a lot of papers on this. Well, you're, uh, it's going to be, different terminology is going to be used. Um, look for things like the dorsal attentional network and the ventral attentional network or the dorsolateral and the ventromedial uh, networks. So they'll often be referred to as attentional networks because, uh, the the idea of identifying these two things as as com- two completely modes of perception hasn't uh, necessarily ripened within the neuroscience community uh, into the kind of recognition that I've given it here in this book. Uh, it nevertheless, this is a, it's it's a much studied area, and uh, if you if you do a little digging in the area of uh, uh, of, of brain networks, you're going to come across a lot of information about it. How does this relate, if at all, to the finding that meditation reduces default mode network activity? Well, uh, that's bunkum. Uh, what it does is it changes default node network activity. Um, and um, th- the particular kind of, of DMN activity that manifests in us as Westerners is uh, uh, partly uh, culturally, or maybe largely culturally determined. Um, the default mode network is capable of functioning in a variety of different ways. And uh, the particular aspect of DMN activity Sorry. Sorry. that produces... Uh, yeah,
0: because yeah. the kids are free
1: there, so... The, the particular mode of uh, the mode of the default mode network that produces all this inner self talk is uh uh is one that the the default mode network is capable of functioning in a variety of ways um, and uh, it's its opposite is is there's, there's a task uh, uh task oriented network and the the two of them actually uh can alternate with each other or interact with each other in very interesting ways. so uh, as long as you're going to be looking into to brain networks, uh, you should uh, investigate the uh, what's being said about the default mode network a little more deeply than has been by uh, uh, people who are writing about meditation because there's been a tendency for people focusing on meditation to seize on this particular way that the fault mode network behaves and, uh, and, and makes the DMN itself the, the villain, and it's not. So, finally got to the last question. Chris Scott, <laughs> how are you feeling? And generally, how is your health? Uh, well, I'm feeling pretty good the last few days. Uh, my health continues to be a, a struggle. Um, and, uh, but uh, it's a struggle that uh, uh, I, I feel in the last few days that, you know, it was, it was going the wrong way. And I feel like now it's leveling out and maybe starting to go the right way again. But we all know what the, what the end result is going to be. It's all a question of, of making the best of it until the, then and, uh, and maybe putting that off as long as possible. How's your next book coming? Well... Uh, we have uh, a wonderful thing happening where uh, uh, Dharma Treasure is taking over a retreat center, and this happened just when I was going to go on a sabbatical and focus all my attention on on uh, my next book. So uh, my next book is gestating very, very much in my mind while I do other things, and I do have a pretty substantial collection of writing that is that. Um, is, is now largely obsolete that when I have time, I'm gonna get around to reorganizing and uh, making useful once again. What can we do to help and support you other than contribute through Patreon website? Um, keep spreading the word. Um, share with others the, uh, your, your own uh, uh, success and the value you found in uh, The Mind Illuminated and uh, bring other people's attention to the Dharma Treasure website, uh, our recordings and things like that. So um, I'd like you to, to support Dharma Treasure. T- I have all these wonderful people that I'm training to be uh, Dharma Treasure teachers. Um, I don't want this to be something where you know uh, everything is centered on me. And when I pass away, it you know, all kinds of falls apart. One of the things that I know is going to happen, because it's already happening anyway, is that there are people out there who I've not trained as teachers who are teaching things in, in ways that uh, uh, I don't agree with. So uh, please support Dharma Treasure. Please support uh, the uh, graduates of uh, Dharma Treasure teaching. Please support all the students who are now doing the Dharma Treasure uh, Teachers program. Um, they are really well qualified to uh, to answer your questions and to lead retreats for you and things like that. So support Dharma Treasure and support Dharma Treasure Teachers and support me, support TMI. That's how you can help. And that is a perfect place to stop. I didn't want to go to two hours. <laughs> so and we've already lost the number of people, but we got through the list of questions. Hey, yay, okay. Um, thank you very much for coming and staying. Um, thank you, Kulalasa. And I enjoyed it, and I, yeah, it's wonderful to see your faces, and hear your questions. So until next time, be well.
0: Take care. You too.